Today's sermon comes from Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We're taking a break from our Corinthian sermon series, and we're going to uh, enjoy uh, the Advent time in the book of Revelation. And so that's uh, where we begin this morning. I was two, two years ago, just thinking back on this, I entered the Advent season on my back. I had one of my lower discs in my back had herniated and it was pressing on the sciatic nerve and I had tremendous pain down my left leg and uh, it was actually quite a depressing Advent season. Um, I remember being on my back in bed while Kim and the kids and my father-in-law went off to get the Christmas tree and you know, I, I could do nothing. I was laid up. It was a depressing season, but you know, since then I've gotten a little distance from there, there and my back's in a little better shape. I've looked back on that and, and realized actually there was, a, there was a longing that was stirred in that month of December two years ago because I became keenly aware of my broken body, laying on my back with much time to think uh, and much time to, to think through what Advent is all about. And Advent, the word literally means coming. And there's a little bit of irony because Advent is a season where it's a time of rejoicing, right? We rejoice in the Christ who has come. We rejoice in, in his second coming. But it's also a season where the brokenness of life, the frailty of life, the brokenness of our hearts tends to, to come to the surface. And that's what Advent tends to do. It tends to highlight brokenness. It, it highlights marriage struggles, if you're going through a marriage struggle, it, it highlights, uh, if kids are not doing well, that gets highlighted. I mean, it highlights the loss of, of loved ones. It highlights the things in this world that just aren't the way they're supposed to be. And, and that's actually what propels us into longing, which is what the Advent season is about. But typically we, in, in brokenness, we tend to run to community 
as something that can help us get through. And that is certainly true that in, in, in times of brokenness, we, we avoid isolation. We need the body around us. But the question is, what, do, what worship or what role does worship play in the brokenness that we experience, in the Advent season, in the longing that we have for Christ's coming again? In other words, how does worship and that's what this Revelation 4 chapter is all about. How does worship empower us to overcome the unease of life and the difficulty of life in a broken world? And, what, and, and how does worship and this, this notion of worship connect to Advent? John introduces this amazing chapter in verse 1, this amazing chapter on worship. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, this verse says a whole lot about worship. Let me explain. First, the context. John is writing in the first century, and it's a time where God's people, followers of Christ, were experiencing tremendous suffering and tremendous persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire, at the hands of the Jews who had rejected the Messiah, it seemed, if you lived in the first century as a follower of Christ, that all the powers of the world, Rome, Jerusalem, all were aligned against the church. And so John writes and receives this vision in the midst of that, not to mention John's own life. He's writing this in exile on the island of Patmos. Okay, his life has is, is been reduced to prison. So he himself is in the midst of tremendous hardship and suffering because of his faith in Christ. And it's in the midst of that that God gives him this vision. And this is not the first time we see it. In fact, all this imagery that you see in this chapter comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Ezekiel, it comes from Daniel, it comes from Isaiah. And what's interesting is that a lot of this imagery that shows up in those prophecies find themselves in a similar context. In fact, Ezekiel, right? Chapter one, Ezekiel one, he says, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Almost exactly what we hear in Revelation four. When Ezekiel says that, where is Ezekiel when he writes that? He's in exile in Babylon. God's people had been ripped out of Jerusalem violently and ripped into a foreign place. They were, they were homeless, they were displaced, going through significant hardship. And God sends them a vision through the prophet Ezekiel. Or you look at Daniel chapter seven, where again, very similar imagery that we see in Revelation four. And in Daniel seven, God gives Daniel a vision of heaven in very similar language to Revelation four. Where is Daniel when he receives this vision? He's in exile in Babylon underneath an evil and just delusional king, Nebuchadnezzar. You see the pattern? When life gets hard, when life gets difficult, when you get to the point of saying, I don't know how much more I can take, God gives you a vision through worship. That's what we see in Revelation 4, is we see that worship is God opening the door of heaven to see this wonderful, amazing reality a reality that is true and a reality that is the ultimate reality that one day will become reality on earth. So that's the pattern. 
When life gets hard, when life gets difficult, the gift of worship, I mean, what happens on Sundays here? And what we see in Revelation 4 is, 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 is a breaking open to see heaven. You know, heaven and earth in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin were united. When sin entered the world, heaven and earth were ripped apart. And what we see in Revelation 4 is this veil between earth and heaven for John gets opened up and he sees a picture of reality. You know, we typically talk about Monday through Saturday in the Christian or in life as the real world, right? Monday through Saturday, we go to the real world. Sunday worship can almost feel like not the real world. You know, it's just the opposite. You know, Sundays in worship or any worship service is the real world because the, the heavens get opened and you, you get a picture of ultimate reality. What is real that one day is gonna become real here on, here on this earth. Now, how does worship that opens the door of heaven, how does that connect to Advent? Well, we see here in Revelation 4, the door opened and John went up. One day the door's gonna open and Jesus is gonna come down and he's gonna set things right once and for all. And so we see worship, this beautiful picture of worship painted here in Revelation 4. And until that day when the door opens and Jesus comes down and sets things right once and for all, he gives us worship, the gift of it, to open, to open the door for us to see and be reminded of the reality that exists in heaven that is the ultimate reality. And that our lives would be lived in light of that reality. And so worship empowers us to overcome the unease, the difficulty of life because worship gives us a vision. But a vision of what? A vision of what? In Revelation 4 here, we're gonna see a vision of God's glory, a vision of holiness, his holiness, and a vision of his power. So let's start with a vision of God's glory. You know, what is God's glory? How do you define God's glory? It's hard to put words on. And so John gives us imagery here to describe God's glory. He starts in verse three, and he who sat there, this is the one on the throne. He's describing the throne room where God sits. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now what's the meaning there? Nothing more than those stones are precious, they're brilliant, they're beautiful. That, that, that describes God's beauty. God is indescribably beautiful, brilliant, majestic. And what even highlights his beauty is what you see here described around him on the throne. Look at verse four. It says that around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Now we're gonna pick this up later, but those 24 elders represent all of God's people, the, the church, Old Testament to new. 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, 12 apostles, disciples in the New Testament. That's where the 24 comes from. It's a description of the totality of the church representing all of God's people. And look how they're positioned. They're not in the center. They're around, all facing in, all gazing in on the beauty of God, right? Everything at the on the throne is oriented around God at the center, God is in the center and every, every being, 
the elders, the creatures, they, they all find their place in orientation around God at the center. That is a picture of ultimate reality. God is at the center. You know, um, years ago when I did youth ministry in Charlotte, North Carolina, I had a small group with a bunch of high school guys. And uh, every Wednesday night, <clears throat> we would have Bible study at my house. And uh, we, would, we would leave the church. We would, we would carpool from the church where we would have the kind of the big, large group youth worship. And then they would come to my house. And, you know, with high school guys, you got to make it somewhat attractive, right? To, to get interested, study the Bible. So we'd come to my house. They would plop down in my den. And then I'd go in the kitchen and I'd prepare a plate of break and bake chocolate chip cookies. Okay, take about, you know, 10 to 12 minutes to bake really quick. And for those 10 to 12 minutes that I was in the kitchen getting them prepared, you know, they'd be sitting in the den just having conversation that high school kids talk about, right? They'd be poking fun at each other. They'd be complaining about football practice that day. Uh, they'd, you know, here and there be gossiping about someone. Um, it just, they'd be, they'd be arguing over something incredibly dumb, you know, inconsequential, right? This is what was going on in the den. And then the moment would come when the, the cookies would come out of the oven, I'd, I'd put them on a plate, I'd come around the corner. And as soon as they saw me, as soon as they saw that plate, every conversation would stop. It was utter silence. And as I moved towards the coffee table, they would start to get up and go to grab. I'd say, sit down, don't grab a cookie yet. Wait till I put them on the coffee table and get out of the way. Because it was like vultures that would converge on it. But I tell you, when I came around that corner, it was amazing to watch their focus, to see everything go quiet and all of them at once gaze upon the beauty of what was sitting on that plate. And it would last about a couple seconds until they would attack. But I share that because it was truly a picture of, of their... You just saw their brokenness in conversation. And then suddenly something came in that captured their attention. And it was beautiful. Warm, fresh, out of the oven chocolate chip cookies. You know, we're, we're no different. There is, at every moment of our lives, there is, there is something at the center that is capturing our mind, our emotions, our wills, that we put something at the center, something that we deem beautiful, that captures our attention. The problem is those, those things at the center so often fail. And I would say this, that in, in the midst of suffering, hardship, difficulty, when life just gets difficult, it is very easy to put something there in the center that we think is beautiful. Now, here's the question when you find yourself putting something at the center that your gaze is fixed upon, some idol, something other than something or some person other than God, what turns you away from that? It's not hard work. It's not you trying really hard, like I, I've got to look away from that. The problem is you've put it there because you think it's beautiful. No, what turns your attention away is with something more beautiful comes into picture. 
And that's what's going on here in Revelation 4. John's on an island in prison. What a way to end your life, right? God's people are suffering. They're being persecuted. And God says, you know what? I'm gonna give you a vision of something so beautiful that's gonna grab your attention and fix your focus. And so he gives them this vision of God's glory, of his indescribable beauty. And it's a glory that eclipses suffering. It's a glory that eclipses hardship and difficulty. That's what Paul gets at in Romans 8, 18, when he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Worship is to be a time where the heavens open and you get a peek at that glory. And when you limp in to worship, when you limp in broken, hurting, over the loss of a loved one, over a marriage that's struggling, over kids that are struggling, over the loss of a job, over the breakup of a relationship, whatever it may be, when you find yourself limping into worship, God says, I'm giving you a gift here so that the heavens can open and you can see my glory and that my white hot, indescribable uh, beauty can eclipse whatever hardship you are going through. So worship empowers us to overcome the difficulty of life because it gives us a vision of God's glory. Second, it gives us a vision of God's holiness. Now, there's, there's two aspects of God's holiness that show up in this chapter. The first is seen in the, the second half of verse five. It says, and before the throne, we're burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven being the number of completion in the Bible, the number of fullness. It's saying that there was, there's this fullness and abundance of light and this abundant fulfillment or the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the, the imagery here, John is pulling from the temple in the Old Testament because in the temple, right before the Holy of Holies, there was a lampstand with seven lamps on it, burning brightly. And the point was that God is pure, that God is holy. And before the priest would enter the Holy of Holies, he was reminded of that, that God's light pushes out darkness, that God is pure. That's one aspect of his holiness. He is pure. The second aspect of his holiness shows up in verses six to eight. And that's where we see these four living creatures worshiping God. Now, what's going on here? Well, these living creatures are angelic beings. They're angels, and angels exist to serve God, to serve his people. They're messengers. They move with strength and speed. That's why the, the ox and the, the eagle right, are used to describe these angelic beings. They, they serve God with fervor, with strength, with speed, right? That as angelic beings, they're, they're submitted. They're submitted to God. And they say over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Three times, holy, holy, holy. That word holy there, it, it means set apart. And this is the other aspect of God, God's holiness, is that he is set apart, that he is creator, that we are creatures, that these angelic beings are creatures. They're created beings. And there's this, there's this distinction between the creator and the created. We see at the end of verse 11, 
for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. God is creator. God is set apart as, as holy other as creator. We are creatures. God creates us in his image. We don't create God in our image. And yet that happens a lot in our world. C.S. Lewis in his book, God in the Dock, listen to what he says. The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, meaning man. Man is the judge, God's in the dock. God's on trial. And he, in man, is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the, event, is on the bench. Man is um, judging and God is in the dock. God is on trial. And I would just say that's very true of our world, that God so often is put on trial and that man is put in the place of judge. And what we see here in Revelation 4 is just the opposite. Right? We see just the opposite, that God is judge, and that we are, we are in the dock. Right? That we're the ones that are submitting to him or, 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 or to be submitted to him. You know, these, this imagery here in Revelation 4, it finds its place, uh, similar imagery in Isaiah 6, talking about these living creatures. And in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees this vision that God gives him of these living creatures and they cry out, holy, 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 what is Isaiah's response? He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Or in Ezekiel 1, in Ezekiel 1, this very same imagery in Revelation 4 appears in Ezekiel 1. And at the end of that vision that Ezekiel gets from God, what does he do? He says he fell on his face right, that the response to God's holiness, the response to God being set apart as holy other is a response of submission, of bowing to God, of submitting to his will. Paul says in Romans chapter nine, verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? And then in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, what, what does that mean when we say your will be done? God's sovereign will is gonna be done. We, we, don't, we don't have to pray and get God to somehow accomplish his sovereign will. That, his sovereign will is gonna be done. So what does it mean when we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, what is happening here in this picture in heaven in Revelation 4? You've got the 24 elders representing the church right, in, in worship, bowing to God. You've got the angelic beings bowing to God. Everyone is submitting to God with God at the center. When we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in the present, that means that, that we're praying that we would bow the knee to God, that we would submit to his will. And, and this, think about the context again here. John's in prison. God's people are being persecuted. They're suffering. And God gives them this vision to say, 
submit to my will, submit to what I'm doing in the midst of whatever hardship, whatever difficulty you're going through. And you know as well as I that when, when suffering or hardship or difficulty comes, it's very easy to take the position of judge and to put God on trial. And the, the message from this vision here is that the ultimate reality in heaven would be a reality here on earth, which is that we bow and submit to God, submit to his will, his good, perfect will. And we're gonna get to his goodness here when we get to the third point. So you've got a vision of God's glory in the midst of difficulty that eclipses suffering. You've got a vision of God's holiness being set apart that causes us to bow to him. He's the creator, we're the creature. He's the judge, we're in the dock, we bow to him. And then finally, we get here a vision of God's power, a vision of God's power. And we're gonna see several aspects of his power here in Revelation 4. The first is God's power over evil. We see it in the last half of verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Again, that's just language from the Mount Sinai experience of God's people. Mount Sinai, same thing was happening. God descended on Mount Sinai, gave Moses the 10 commandments, but there was thunder, there was lightning, just representing God's power, his absolute power. But power over what? Look at verse six, last part of verse six. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, two images here, sea of glass and crystal. What do they mean? Well, the sea of glass in the book of Revelation, the sea represents evil and chaos. And we know this because in Revelation 21.1, it says uh, when it describes the new heavens and the new earth coming down, it says the sea will be no more. Now that doesn't mean there's not gonna be bodies of water in the new heavens and the new earth. What it means is that evil and chaos will be gone. So as John looks up and catches this vision of ultimate reality, what he sees is a God who is sovereign over evil. A God whose sovereignty trumps evil. A, a God whose eternal reign is over the temporary reign of evil. Right? That God is sovereign. The other imagery here is the, the crystal, a sea of glass like crystal. What's the crystal have to do with it? Well, crystal is transparent. You can see through it. And the beauty of this is that in, in the heavenlies, in the ultimate reality, you've got the 24 elders who are seeing the, the, the sea of glass, God's sovereign over evil, and then it's clear that God's wisdom and action is perfectly clear that his understanding is perfect. It's not muddy. Now that's, that's different than what we experience here on earth. When difficulty comes, when hardship comes, the waters are very muddy, aren't they? We don't understand what God's doing. We wonder what he's doing. If he's doing something, right? The waters are muddy, but when you, when you get that vision of the heavenlies opened up, it's crystal clear, right? That God is infinitely wise and that he's working out his sovereign plan and that it's good. You know, I've, I've shared this illustration before, but imagine a, a large tapestry being woven on a wall. And if you're looking at the backside of that tapestry, what do you see? You see threads that have been tied off. They're frayed. You know, the back of a tapestry, it, 
you can't quite tell what the design is. It's, it's not very beautiful. When, when God gives John this vision into the heavenlies, when he peels it open, he turns the tapestry around for John. And that's what he does for us in worship. That when that tapestry gets turned around, oh, now you see the absolute beauty and the perfection on the front side. Worship is a gift from God where he just, he, he turns the tapestry around. He gives us a vision of his sovereignty over evil, over his, his infinite wisdom that the, the waters are not muddy in heaven. Though they feel muddy here, and worship is that picture of the clarity of his wisdom and how he's working. Now, when you catch a vision of this, what, what does it produce? This is what we see in verses nine to 11. Verses nine to 11 with the 24 elders, right? Again, that represents you and me, represents all those who are in Christ, who have trusted Jesus Christ. The scriptures say that we will reign with Christ one day. And that is a picture. The 24 elders around the throne is a picture of us one day reigning with Christ. And to some degree, we, and we reign now, that we've been given authority, that we've been given power to, um, to act on behalf of Christ's kingdom here on earth, that there's power and authority. So what does this mean when the, when the, the 24 elders are, are casting their thrones at God's throne, at the base of his throne? What does that mean? Well, verse four says it, it's the golden crowns on their head. So it's a, it's a crown that represents authority. Does it mean they're giving up their power and authority? No, no, what it means, it's a confession that our power and authority is a function of God's power. That our power and authority that he gives us is never to be operated independently of him. That we never use our power to usurp his power. Let me just tie it down to when, when difficulty and hardship hits. One of the temptations, when difficulty and hardship and trouble comes into life, one of the temptations is to try to manipulate situations, is to try to spin truth. It's, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're struggling at work and things are falling apart in the office or things are not going well for you, there's a temptation to want to manipulate the situation to make things turn out how you want them or to spin truth. That, all that is, is taking the power and authority that God has given you as a follower of Christ and starting to work it independently of him. And so the vision here of the elders casting their crowns at God's feet is really a confession, right? And it's a, it's a confession that, that we're not gonna manipulate and that we're not gonna spin truth and that we're gonna, our power is gonna bow to God's power. And that we're gonna trust his power. We're gonna trust what he's doing and that leads us to the final aspect of God's power here. And this is arguably the most beauty, beautiful part of it. Because you see in this passage, God's power exerted towards us and for us in Christ. And let me show you. Last part of verse three. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald so what we see here is there's a rainbow that surrounds the throne. Now, what does that mean? Well, the rainbow is a sign of God's covenantal faithfulness from Genesis 9. After the earth got flooded, Noah was saved. What did he give Noah? He gave him the rainbow. And that was a sign that he would never destroy the earth again by flood. It was a sign of God's faithfulness, that God keeps covenant 
and he keeps covenant with us forever. And so we see here with the rainbow, God's faithfulness forever. Now, what's the evidence of this? Look at the last part of verse four. The 24 elders clothed in white garments. Why white garments? Because they had been cleansed from their sin. That God keeping covenant with us forever means that he was committed to doing whatever it would take to cleanse us from our sin, to cleanse us from the evil of sin. And he did that all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. And and the cross of Jesus Christ is where we see the tension between God's holiness and God's love resolved. Because God honored his holiness in the cross by punishing sin. God, God is no longer God if he doesn't punish sin. And so we see God's holiness honored in punishing sin, but we see God honor his love by punishing his son, Jesus, instead of you and me. And that's why we say at the cross of Jesus Christ, God's holiness and love meet, where he honors both, deals with our sin, but doesn't lose us because he puts our sin on Jesus Christ. And I say that because in times of trouble, in times of difficulty, in times of hardship, consider God's people in the first century when all powers are aligned against them in the church, John in exile, spending his last days in prison. It's very easy when trial hits to start to question, isn't it? Does God really love me? Is he, is, is this, is he punishing me? Is he withholding from me? And God reminds us in this passage that he keeps covenant forever. And that if you're in Christ, you are, clo- you are clothed in white garments because your sin has been dealt with once and for all and has been removed as far as the East is from the West. You are clothed in white now and for eternity. And that's the picture we get in Revelation 4. And so when your difficulty and your hardship and your suffering starts to press in, be reminded that you're loved and that your hardship and suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure, that he keeps covenant and that he's dealt with your sin in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, we're talking about God's power here. Perhaps Jesus' greatest display of power was when he stayed on that cross. He could have come down but he stayed on that cross for you. He stayed on that cross to take away your sin once and for all so that you could be clothed in white. Now that's good news. In the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your hardship, right? Worship opens the door to the heavenly reality. How many of you have seen a sneak preview of a movie that's coming out? You ever done that before? I've done it once where I went and I got the sneak preview, me and about, I don't know, 50 other people. But we actually got to see the movie before it came out to the general public. So we walked out of the sneak preview having seen what nobody else had yet seen. Revelation 4 is a sneak preview Revelation 4 is what worship is to be every week. 
sneak preview where the, the heavens are opened and we see reality. And when we look and we see that reality, we see the vision of God's glory that eclipses suffering. We see a vision of God's holiness, his set-apartness that causes us to bow and submit to his will. And we see a vision of God's power that reminds us that he is sovereign over every bit of evil and that evil is temporary and that God has exerted his power towards you in Jesus Christ to take away your sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this picture in Revelation 4. That even as we meet right now, right here on earth, what we read about and what we just talked about is actually happening right now. That there is an ultimate reality that exists in the heavenlies that one day will be true on earth. That Father, as you in Revelation 4 opened the door and John went up, that one day you're gonna open the door of heaven and Jesus is gonna come down. And this Advent season, we look to that day. We long for that day. But until that day comes, would you help us to understand worship as an opening of the door of heaven to see what is true and what is real? And would that help us would that help us with perspective on what we're going through now? With so many gathered here, there are people in this room, Father, who are going through significant trouble, significant difficulty, significant hardship. And we pray that even as we close now in worship, that as heaven is opened and we see and we join in the worship of you with the 24 elders and the, the living creatures and the angels that we would bow and submit and sing to a God who is indescribably beautiful, set apart as creator and absolutely powerful. Father, thank you for exerting your power towards us and for us in Jesus Christ. And thank you that if we are in Christ this morning, we are clothed in white garments, our sin has been removed. Father, I pray for anyone here who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, for anyone here who has not trusted Jesus and understood maybe what we talked about, what he did on the cross, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them to the place of surrendering and trusting you, Jesus, and believing what you did on their behalf. Father, would you fill our worship now with your spirit, enable us to sing with strength and passion to you. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.